Welcome to Hope Stream, a podcast for moms and dads who have kids with substance use disorder or who are in treatment or early recovery. I'm Brenda Zane, fellow mom to a child who battled an addiction to drugs and who almost died from multiple fentanyl overdoses. So I see you and I feel your pain, and I created this space for people just like us. Hopestream is a space where we focus on you, your health, sanity, and well-being, and I also bring expert resources to help you navigate this scary and confusing world of teen and young adult substance use. This is where you'll find your tribe, and I'm really glad to have you with me. So let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the final episode of Hope Stream for 2020. Can we all just exhale for a second? Oh, it has been a year. um, And I am wrapping up the year with some great thoughts and insights and quotes from the 41 episodes of Hope Stream that aired in 2020. And I know that some of you have been listening since January when I launched episode one, where I tell the story of our family's journey through my son's addiction. But I also know that some of you have just found Hope Stream, and this might actually be the first episode that you ever listened to. So for some, this will be a recap and a reminder of all of the amazing guests and thoughts that I've shared. And for some of you, it'll be more of a primer that'll just help you navigate more directly to some of the episodes that interest you, because I had to just pick some really key slices out of some of the episodes, but you're definitely going to want to go back and hear the whole thing from these guests. It's long. I'm not going to lie. It's a really long episode. But the great thing is you can listen in small chunks. Trust me, though, you don't want to miss the last two segments. Both are very eye-opening and educational. I will also mention that since this year was the launch of a podcasting career that I never expected to embark on and I had no experience in, you'll notice that there are some sound quality disparities in these episodes. I've learned a lot over the year, so please just bear with audio quirks as you listen and know that season two will be much more consistent. So sit back or tie up your shoes or start your commute and let's do this. I'm going to start out with a portion of episode two where I spoke with Derek Bowles, the owner and lead therapist at Crossroads Academy in Ogden, Utah. This episode is the second or third, I have to go back and look at the stats now, but um, second or third most listened to one of 2020, and I know why. Derek is deeply caring and committed to helping young people, and in particular young guys, figure out their substance use issues, deal with their family dynamics, and he is just a really cool guy who they can relate to. So we talked about adolescence, about natural highs, and Derek shares some things that parents can do and not do when their child is struggling. So listen in to some of the mic drop segments of this really important episode. One of the things that really stood out to us was, you know, just because you're going through addiction doesn't mean your life stops or that you can't still 
have a tremendous amount of fun or love the good parts of life. And so adventure-based living and, and kind of recreation for us was really important. And those things for us happened to be kind of the, the X game sports, uh, snowboarding and wakeboarding and skateboarding, rock climbing, mountain biking, certainly the gym and being physically active were a big part of what we thought could be a great way to connect to young guys and, and as well as for them to be in an active participant in their recovery. And so we, we really wanted to build a program that had those aspects to it, that that was a big part of recovery, uh, kind of the natural highs. And then, and then for us, that led to the second piece that, that we knew was really important, which is how much the adolescent connects to the treatment providers indicates really long-term success or how successful a program can be. That's one thing that, that really matters. And that is, does, does my kid connect to my therapist? Does, do adolescents connect to the people around them trying to help their lives? And we just knew if we could do that better than maybe programming had done, if we could do that by doing these sports with the guys, by being physically active with them, by going on these adventures and having adventure-based interactions, that that, that would matter long-term. And and that has really bared out. And and what's really cool now is that the research coming out that are linking those two are, are, are super positive. And so the research is now kind of catching up to kind of what we thought would be super beneficial in working with young, young people. And this has been kind of the guiding principles in our program. So if we can get people physically active, that that actually performs and the outcomes are better than therapy and medication. Where so many of our adolescents have underlying anxiety and depression, being physically active, no matter how you do that. For us, the hook, you know, the the part that that really the extreme sports is that for people who tend to want to do drugs and alcohol, they have that risk gene. They really are somewhat impulsive. Those sports are a real draw. They, they tend to be a little counterculture. They're not necessarily team sports, which is more traditional. Um, so there is, there's an initial hook and draw, right? Which, yeah, I want to ski. I want to snowboard. I want to skateboard. Then the activity themselves come with an inherent risk to them that causes them to do some of the same things that the drugs do in their brain. So they get these natural highs by doing these sports, which then helps, with things like ADD, ADHD, depression, anxiety. So it's this kind of dual process where where they're getting brain healing in some ways by being physically active, by being physically active, they're they're getting a better sense of self, they're increasing their confidence, they're increasing their they're turning off their inner critic, they're they're shutting down the negativities. The third thing that's super powerful in what we know research-wise now is that when you do adventures with somebody, right? If you go on family vacation and you you go zip lining, the people you do that with, the brain releases dopamine, which is the connector drug, right? You actually feel closer to those people than if you just sat around and talked. Okay. So for us with my my support staff, the guys who are with these guys every day, the therapist, if we go do these experiences together, we then connect deeper, which allows us to do the therapy at a deeper level. And so there really is multiple layers that play out when, when, you, when you do these adventure-based sports. And, and what's been really cool is that the brain you know, mapping and all the stuff that's kind of come out in the last five to seven years has, has really 
map those chemicals in the brain, which now is kind of really affirming what, what we believed all the time. But now they have real research that says, yeah, like if you want to feel closer to your family, go do an adventure with your family. You're going to feel closer. That's why kids remember vacations where they go and do cool stuff because that's when they felt closest to their families. It would blow your mind how many parents I've had say to me, well, I just, I can't envision my kid not having gone to prom this year or, you know, not going to the homecoming game. And I I have tremendous empathy around that, but it also is super problematic in truly seeing your kiddo where they're really at. And as well as your yeah. kid to really be honest with you in the sense of where they're at, because if if they have to present different than this ideal, then that can become really a problem. It's also hard as the parent to to have you have that outcome in mind for your child, but then you also sort of have your own parenting outcome of what are you going to tell your friends when they say, oh, where's your son or where's your daughter Oh, they're right. like living in another state for, for sure. a while. You know, it's, it's, it just sort of, like you said, it disrupts your own, you know, personal outcome of what you think you that you are going to be doing as a parent. So it's, it's sort of like a, and I think, sword. I think I'm, you know, I want to be empathic to that loss and that there's some sadness around that and some grief and we should all kind of give it its appropriate weight, but we need to be savvy in how we see that because that outcome then becomes really, problematic in how we address addiction because what i found is kids will go really really far out of their way to turn that outcome up on its head right once sometimes Mm. it's just in the sense of i don't want to deal with what that might look like for my parents or myself if i had to really face i'm not going to college because i'm not even graduating high school because i've been addicted to drugs Right. Just for for an adolescent or a family to accept right. that can be heartbreaking as compared to just the fact that they're dealing with the drugs. Right. Which is heartbreaking in and of itself. But to add those layers to it can become really problematic. And so oftentimes in treatment, it's it's really pushing families to let go of those outcomes because you have zero control over that. And as a matter of fact, the more you try to control that outcome, it ends up hurting the one thing you have the most control over, which is how do you connect to your kid? Mm, So much wisdom from Derek. Love him. The next episode I want to highlight is episode number three with Dr. Carrie Wilkins, who co-authored the book that I talk about constantly, Beyond Addiction, The episode is also in the top five most downloaded, and I believe it's because Carrie and actually all of the psychologists at CMC, which is the uh, Center for Motivation and Change, they all have such an empathetic and non-stigmatizing view and approach to addiction, because I felt like what she was saying made so much sense, and that the, the problems that I was discussing with her could be resolved. She didn't make it sound easy, uh, but her approach is just so practical and refreshing. So let's listen into some of the golden nuggets from episode three with Dr. Carrie Wilkins. That's the other problem in traditional treatment programs is, you know, they didn't have the psychological psychiatric sophistication to treat the co-occurring disorders. Um, with evidence-based treatments. There's a lot of programs that say we treat co-occurring disorders. 
they don't really using evidence-based treatments. You know, they don't know what exposure treatments are. They don't, you know, they're resistant to using medications. A variety of problems are around that. They don't know how to treat PTSD. Um, so that's a big part of the system too, because I've never met somebody with a substance use problem who doesn't have something else that's actually driving the bus, um, you know, because substances work. They work in a variety of different ways. You know, people aren't crazy because they use substances. They, they're using substances because they work for them in some way. So you've got to understand that. And you've got to be able to work with those underlying issues. The other thing about addiction problems and substance use in general is it's, it's a very stigmatized problem to have. You know, there's so much stigma and shame in this country around um, addiction. And so you end up with these very black and white, you're an addict or not, you're an alcoholic or you're not. Um, he said these very black and white, you have to be completely sober, you know, all the kind of stuff. And it's just baked into the language and how people understand things at this point. It's not how 12 step intended it, but you know, it's just how the cultural, how people talk about things, but you know, moral character deficits. And you know, there's just all sorts of things that we say about people with substance use problems that we wouldn't say about any other illness, um, <laughs> which is just yes. shocking. You know, so you have that that out in there in the world. So then when you're a parent and you start to see your kids struggle, most parents have a very kind of understandable, instinctive response to just hope they grow out of it. You know, like, I hope that's not a real problem that I'm seeing. Maybe it's just a phase. Maybe it's just a stage. You know, um, you, you kind of don't want to, a lot of parents don't want to really dive into, wow, I got to really address this. Um, and then, and then a problem is kind of building. And so by the time they are addressing it, it's a much bigger problem. And then they don't really understand it. And so they immediately go into consequences and punishment and trying to control things. One of the things that we've um, built into protocol, which I can tell you about called the invitation to change approach is helping people understand the problem that they are facing in a completely different way and really shifting it to understanding as a behavioral issue and understanding kind of how behavior works. Um, you know, because if you think about alcohol, you know, alcohol is one of the best anti-anxiety medications on the market. It takes anxiety away. If you keep drinking, it might make your anxiety worse, actually, right? But that initial drink for most people calms your nerves. It helps you relax. If you've got a busy mind, it might help you calm your mind down at the end of the day. You know, if you're somebody with trauma, it helps you not have flashbacks. It helps you not have bad memories. Um, if you're somebody who's socially anxious, it makes it so you feel totally comfortable laughing and talking with people and small talk, right? So the initial engagement with a substance tends to be around things that people are struggling with. You know, a lot of kids with ADHD end up smoking pot because, you know, their insides of their minds are kind of bouncing around. They're having lots of thoughts. They're having racing thoughts. They're jumping around. Pot really mellows things out. It kind of silences that internal chatter. It helps them sleep, you know, so you know, it helps them engage socially because it kind of slows them down a little bit. So again, you see a lot of kids moving to substances that initially are helping them in some way. The kid who starts smoking pot regularly, who then is doing terribly in school, you know, it has a terrible effect on motivation. You know, it ultimately doesn't help with concentration, but to the kid, it feels like it does. You know, so if you, as a parent, if you can really slow down and think, what is my kid getting from their substance? The, the, that's the most powerful thing you can understand because then you can go around and be like, okay, what do I have to help them with? What are those underlying things that they need that I could be supportive of in some way? I can think about their environment that they're in. I can think about different treatment options that might help them with those things. You know, you may end up getting treatment for your kid that has nothing to do with substance use, but you're, ta you're, 
you're addressing the thing that is actually driving the substance use. So it just, when you slow down and kind of think about it through a different lens, it really can shift the options you see available um, and help you have a lot more empathy for the person with the problem. You know, people, we, we tend to get mad at people with substance use problems, right? <laughs> Cause they're, yes. they're scaring us and they're, you know, they're making us mad and they're <laughs> spending too much money and there's all sorts of reasons to be upset about it. But I think to, again, really slow down and try to understand it through this different lens can increase that empathy that, which can then really decrease tension in the household. And then you've got something to work with. Everybody at CMC, we got trained in community reinforcement and family training, which is the acronym is CRAFT, um, which is one of the only, it's one of the most effective and only evidence-based treatments for family members. Um, and it's it's the reason why we wrote the book Beyond Addiction, because um, CRAFT has been around for a very, very long time. All the studies of the effectiveness of CRAFT are actually done almost 20 years ago at this point. It's one of the most well-researched interventions for family members. Um, it's the most effective intervention for family members. And the addiction treatment world was not picking it up. Nobody knew about it. So we wrote the book. And um, so CRAFT was developed by Bob Myers, and it's based on community reinforcement approach, which is one of the most effective treatments for substance use disorders, because it really, again, it takes what I just said about like, okay, substance use makes sense in some way. You know, person's being reinforced, the substance use is reinforcing in some way, meaning they're getting something from it. So if we're going to take that away from them, if we're going to help them give that up, we've got to think about what in their world is contributing to that problem. And let's look at a very holistic approach. We want to look at their satisfaction in their work and school life, their satisfaction in their ability to be in good, healthy relationships. How do they take care of their bodies? What's the actual community they live in? You know, are they somebody who's really incredibly motivated to change, but they live in an incredibly high risk community? You know, so you're really looking at the whole person. Um, you know, the studies on that are 25 years or more old. Um, and Bob, brilliant guy, his dad struggled with alcohol use. And he, you know, spent his whole life as a kid watching his mom do all those things he described, yell at her, yell at his dad, be upset, kick him out of the house, all of these things. And so when he was doing these early trials on CRA, he's like, why are we not teaching the family members to do the same things we're teaching the therapist to do? We're, te- we're giving therapists all these good skills. Why are we not teaching the family members that similar skills because they're the ones out in the world on the ground. They're the ones who are most motivated for things to change. Um, Let's give them the skills they need to reinforce healthy behaviors, learn to communicate differently so that you can lower defensiveness and get, get your person talking so you can better understand things. You know, how do you let naturally occurring consequences play a role? How do you take care of yourself in the whole process? So craft was developed for family members who had a treatment resistant loved one. You know, so your kid has a very serious substance problem and they really don't want treatment or your spouse. So you as a mother or you as a husband can come in, work with a therapist, learn the craft skills, and it helps you help your loved one change. So they would, in the studies, they would take people who had been trained in craft and compare them people to family members who had tried to use an intervention and then to family members who had gone to Al-Anon. And what they were looking at was, you know, what's your, what is the success rate of getting your loved one into treatment? And, you know, craft, they were getting their loved ones into treatment 60% or more of the time. 
interventions are about 30% and Al-Anon's like under 10. Part of that is that Al-Anon is not designed to get your loved one into treatment, right? Al-Anon is a support group where you can go and get support from other people who are struggling with their loved ones. So it's not even designed to do that. The problem with interventions, you know, in spite of what interventionists say, where they get, oh, we have 99% effectiveness. Okay. Interventions are effective in getting people into treatment but there's an enormously high dropout. The majority of family members actually don't complete the intervention because it's actually so stressful to do. They actually drop out of the process. You know, and then what we see all the time is they may get their loved one into treatment, but then you've got a loved one who's pissed off. So they're in treatment and they're mad about being in treatment and they're now really mad at you as a family member. So, and that's just like a setback, you know, yes, interventions have absolutely saved thousands of people. They, they absolutely do work at times and we recommend them sometimes but the majority of people can't afford them. Their loved one's not going to take to it. You know, so what else are we going to give those people? And so craft is, is really that um, because it, it's a, something that you can use every day and over a long period of time and have your loved one change. And in the studies, what was really interesting is that they would get their loved one into treatment. Um, and I'm blocking on the number now, but I think it's like in under, under four six or four sessions, they would get their loved one into treatment. When their loved one got into treatment, their substance use was down before they even got to treatment. And the well-being and the life satisfaction of the family member who was actually doing craft was improved. You know, so their depression, their stress, everything that a family member struggles with was actually also better. Well, there you have it. If you have been a HopeStream listener for very long, you have probably heard me talk about craft. You've heard me talk about the book Beyond Addiction, the 20-Minute Parent Guide. So there you go from the source. Uh, Carrie is one of the co-authors of that book, and I cannot recommend it enough. If you are struggling and really wanting to help your son or daughter move towards healthier choices and even want to move them towards treatment. The next two segments I'm sharing are from moms who have both been through the battle of addiction with their kids and sadly both lost the battle. These were two of the most difficult conversations to get through and uh, from an emotional standpoint really, really hit home with me. Megan McGalley lost her son Matt to an overdose, but she has gone on now to start a foundation called American Boy They help fund extended treatment programs for kids who are in treatment, insurance runs out, child wants to stay in treatment and continue, but the family doesn't have the means to do that. They also help young people who have been through treatment find job opportunities. So this is an amazing organization that grew out of a tragedy. And Megan has some really, really profound insights that I believe are extremely important for parents to hear. So listen in to my conversation with Megan. You know, this was the kind of thing that, you know, I, I kept thinking that, you know, I, I'm, I'm a really smart person. Like, why can I not figure this out for him? I don't think he can. So I've got to do that. And when I couldn't figure out you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to love him to death. I'm going to throw him out of the house. I'm going to take things away. No use of the car. You know, I tried everything. And when I couldn't figure that out, I I just came to the realization that this is bigger than I am. I, I need an expert. I need, I need to reach out to people that 
do know how to do this. Yeah. Um, but that's a really hard thing when it's your when it's your own child. It is. You know that that you can't navigate through it with him together. It was a really hard thing. But you know now in hindsight, knowing it's a disease. I couldn't navigate you through cancer, right? right? I couldn't, right? I couldn't navigate my child through leukemia or, or whatever. So why was this any different? Yeah. But I wasn't at that state of mind at that point. I always say, you know, people looking at this from the outside in, it just, it must just look like complete madness because one day you're doing this and then one day you're doing that because one parent believes this and the other parent believes that. And it's just, yeah, it's incredible. Incredibly difficult. And interestingly, you know, the one thing that is so often overlooked are the siblings, because my children yes. had an opinion and I never sought to seek it, but they were thinking it right. amongst themselves, my two girls. And finally, Shay said to me after the third rehab, Mom, don't bring them home. And, you know, I thought, mm -hmm. Shay, I'm the adult here. And she's like, Mom, don't bring him home. He's not ready to come home. And he's just going to, he's going to relapse again. And they were right every time. But, you know, I mean, you make decisions and you compromise your morals because you love the child so much. I mean, I made decisions on behalf of Matt, you know, that I knew in my gut were wrong. Um, oh, can you give me a ride somewhere? I've got to drop something off at a friend. And I'm in like this horrible area of Washington, DC. I'm like, what are we doing here, Matt? And I knew what we were doing, but, or, you know, he, he right. you know, there were a few times that he said, I'm going to try to withdraw from heroin in my bedroom, which I never realized how horrific that was. You know, by mm. day five, he's saying to me, mom, you got to give me $10 so I can go buy Suboxone or I'm going to just kill myself, you know? And, 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 right. you know, you, in your mind, you know, the right answer. But, you know, you're like, oh, my God, you know, or he'd say, I'm going to go to Walmart and steal something and then just return it so I can just go buy the money, you know, for Suboxone. And it's like, it's like right. the lesser of two evils, you know, and, and you're just so sick yeah. to your stomach because, you know, you're, you're giving into something that you absolutely know as a parent is inappropriate, but you're left with so, so little other choices, in my mind, anyway. Yeah. Is there anything in particular that, that stands out to you that you did that you look back now and would say to another mom who's in the midst of this, you know, this was a big lesson that I learned or looking back, I would not do this again, knowing that everybody's situation is different. But I think there are a lot of commonalities, at least that I hear, where you are forced with that decision in the moment. What do I do? Anything that comes to mind? Uh, well, I think... Yeah, you know, I think there were there there were quite a few times where I tried to be the mediator between like my husband and my son and I tried to keep the peace and I don't want the police coming to the house and stop, you know, everyone stop yelling and you know, I, I read so much about addiction. I I must have 20 books in my library. I read everything I get my hands on. Everyone has a different opinion of it. And honestly, I thought and I, and I still, you know, I still to some degree feel this way. I thought I could love Matthew through his addiction. Mm. I really did. I really thought love would conquer. The fact that, you know, Shay, my youngest, has a, a terminal illness. And they were so close, so close. And I thought if he can't do it for Shay and for I, I couldn't come to terms with why 
And I'd often ask him, what can, why can't you do this for me? Why can't you do this for Shay? Why are you putting Shay through this? And I put more pressure on my son by saying words like that, Brenda, than I realized the consequence of what my words drove him to do. And the frustration of him saying, I will never overcome this addiction. I can't. I can't. How can I not, after four rehabs, how can I not have had success? I've had success in everything else in my life. And that was heartbreaking for me. And so I think if, you know, if there is a takeaway from, from that part of the story, it's that, that words do matter. And I thought I was being loving in trying to get him to realize how lucky he is not to have the illness Shay has, but really it drove him harder into addiction because he just felt worthless. I really wish I could have, I don't know, I kind of wanted to just repeat the entire episode with Megan because... I think having that lived experience, she has some really good insights um, additionally throughout the episode. So be sure and go back and download episode nine with Megan. The next guest that I am highlighting here is Paula Becker. She is an author of historical books. She never thought that she would be writing a memoir about her experiences of parenting a son who was addicted to opioids. Paula's book, a House on Stilts and Her Family Story is one of the most impactful I have ever read. This book is so full of all of the things that so many of us parents go through and deal with. And her style of writing is just so gorgeous and real. So here are some amazing nuggets from Paula Becker, who I spoke with in April for episode five. We had been going through um, Hunter's really strongly rebellious teenage years and then eventual drug addiction um, and several, three different stints in rehab. We had been going through this um, by that point for um, seven years, six years. um, And at the this time, Lily was taking driver's ed. Uh, Hunter was living on the streets in Portland, in the areas around Portland. And so I thought to myself, okay, I'm. this has been like a fire hose shooting water at our family for years now. And all I want to do is try to figure out what order things happened in. Mm-hmm. So I didn't say to myself, I'm writing a book. <laughs> I didn't say, I certainly didn't say, oh, I'm going to publish this. I was like... What order did things happen in? So I had really thought a whole bunch about what it means to write memoir. And I knew that what I was writing in this this story, this this thing I had constructed, was was my story. It was not Hunter's version of his story. It wasn't Barry or Lily or Sawyer's version. It was my version. And I knew that I, I owned it. And if I decided I wanted to publish it, that I had every right to do that. At the same time, um, I'm glad I didn't at that point because many things were still in play. And around the time that I was mulling this over and thinking, well, do I need to, do I want to do a deep dive into this and really try to turn this into a book? Because as anyone knows, <laughs> first draft is a really long way 
from a finished book. Um, Hunter actually got himself back together. He came back to Seattle, and I decided to set this project aside. I always said to myself over the next, gosh, by that time, it would have been four more years. I thought to myself, well, you know, if Hunter ever says, because he knew that I had written this kind of, you know, draft of a book that had to do with our family. I thought if if he ever says to me, oh, you're so right, mom, you know, other parents need a hand to hold. And yes, you should publish this book. Then I would publish it. I couldn't quite see that happening. But that was sort of I thought, okay, if that happens. I'll do it. And I also thought to myself, if Hunter dies, I will come back to this and I will try to turn this into a book. Because when you have a person in your life who is addicted to um, something that could kill them, eventually as a parent, whether you want, you know, you don't want to have this happen and you don't want it to be a reality, but it is a reality that your person could die. And I had gotten to the point by that time where I was able to sit with that as best I could. And so that's why I had that thought that I would I would go back if that ever happened. When Hunter was killed in the summer of 2017, month, a few months after that, I turned back to the book. And that's when I started going at it in earnest. Sort of thinking about the other parents that, that listen to this and who, you know, we know that the struggle of is this just a teenage phase and it sounds like some of your first red flags were that you know some shoplifting sure. and some sneaking right. out at night not coming right. home which sounds very familiar and, <laughs> and did you guys feel like oh you know maybe these are just some typical teenage things that are going on and how do you think parents should think about those things i i never took it like you know oh you know, just shoplifting, no big deal. I mean, I took everything really seriously, but what I kept thinking was, this this has never happened to me. This can't exactly be happening to me. Hunt, this has got to be an aberration. Hunter will self-correct. I know that he is a really reasonable person and a smart person, so this is going to get, this is going to pull itself together. And I think that that, in retrospect, I mean, that sometimes does happen. Maybe it happens for right. most people, but, but it didn't happen for us. And so I like to think now, I try not to give advice, but if people, people do sometimes ask me, what would you have done differently? And one of the things is I would have paid really good attention really early, really fast. And instead of saying, hi, smell smoke, and rolling over and saying, probably, you know, somebody lit a candle, I would say, mm. call the fire department, or, you know, I mean, Really, it's. I think I would react even more strongly uh, and just uh, try to intervene when he was younger um, with like family therapy. I mean, he had a lot of therapy, but we didn't do family therapy. And I and I now think I now think that you know whatever the behaviors were coming from, it it became a family problem. Whether it had been a family problem and. But it became a family problem, and we didn't deal with it together in the therapeutic setting. And then that's hard. You have to find the right person. The part that's so desperately terrifying to me was when he was young enough that, you know, legally and morally, I felt like it was my job to fix this problem. But I couldn't even see what the problem was. And that was just dementing, you know. Up until they're 18, yeah. um, you are supposed to be the one to take care of them. And you yeah. 
when you when you don't know how to do that and when they don't want you to do that, it becomes just this torturous relationship of, yeah. you know, back and forth. And yeah, yeah, that particular part of, of the book was just, it just stuck with me. It was so, so true. Um, what do you want people to take away from A House on Stilts when they're done reading it? Well, if they're in the middle of going through an experience, um, I would say to to get support in whatever way that they possibly can. You know, yeah. um, that might mean for some people, that might mean finding a, a therapist. It might be, you know, getting into some kind of family therapy. There is a system of helping families called CRAFT, K-R-A-F-T, and there's some therapists in, in this area and many more across the country that are starting to use it. And I'll tell you, when somebody comes up to me at a bookstore reading and they tell me a story that about the hard things that are happening with their kid, but that mom looks okay, they always mention that they're working with a CRAFT therapist. So I would yeah, say reaching yeah. that is a good thing. Phew. Okay, the moms were hard. The moms were really hard, but have such, such good wisdom for us. So be sure and and go back and listen to both of those. One of the most discussed topics in the stream, which is the online community that I host for moms of kids who are struggling with substances, is wilderness therapy. For episode 14, I spoke with Will White, who is the founder of Summit Achievement Wilderness, He has been in the wilderness therapy industry for a very long time, and he is basically seen as a historian on this topic. He has his own podcast about it. He has written a book about it. It's all in the show notes for episode 14. But in this segment, Will shares some thoughts from his vantage point of having seen thousands of kids come into and graduate from wilderness programs. And I know this is a super popular topic and have parents have tons of questions about it. So listen in to some very sage advice from Will. It's a rough decision to have to make. And I really, my heart goes out to parents who are trying to make that decision, especially if they have to be transported. If you can talk to them and get them to go, I think that's, that would just be ideal. But there are times when, like you said, it's, it's really, the danger is imminent and they need to be removed. And it's a very painful um, experience to go through. Um, Do you see parents making mistakes during this process or sort of leading up to this when, when they're trying to decide what they should do? I think anytime you're thinking about doing an intervention with your child is your patterns, your enmeshment uh, getting your way. And so the number one mistake is not having a therapist yourself, not doing your own work and realizing your part of this is you're, you're saving your child's life especially if you need to involve the transportation because things have gotten to the place where they're completely out of control. And a lot of the research at the University of New Hampshire at the Outdoor Behavioral Health Center is it's often more dangerous for an adolescent to be living a life of using drugs, etc., than it is for them to be in a wilderness therapy program. They're more likely to die living and using than they are in a wilderness therapy program. And so the worries when you look on things on the web, like, oh, wilderness therapy is bad, that's your 
issue, right? You're getting caught up in what's going on, what you, what you read versus getting the facts. And, and you can find it as we're finding out with COVID-19, right? Like you can find any, any story that suits what you're doing right now, right? Wearing a mask, not wearing a mask. Yes. Yeah. If we look at, really look deeply in ourselves, we all know that time in nature is good for us. We all know that breathing fresh air and sunshine and exercise is good for us. We all know a good therapist is good for us. And then what do we want for our child? We want them to get healthy. And so exercise, eating well, being with healthy people and being and exercising, all those things and, and not getting caught up in your own story. I was surprised to learn about that a big part of our son being in wilderness therapy was us being in as part of that program as well and us doing the work every week and the reading and the workbooks and you know it, you you don't you don't just send them off and then you know kick back and they show back up 9 weeks later and they're they're all fixed. No, actually in many years ago 20 plus years ago that's what was happening, right? But now you're doing you're doing sophisticated parent coaching, you're reading really inspiring books that also make you question your assumptions and paradigms. Whether it's the book The Parallel Process or more Man's Search for Meaning or all of these different books, and there is so many to choose from, and having a good coach to help you look at like, what is your patterns of enmeshment? What are your patterns of rescuing? How are you reacting to these sort of as the parent? And what are your triggers? And the child, the same thing. Is there sort of a scenario that you see all the time or is there a question that you get asked? Like if you could have a billboard in the middle of downtown, you know, wherever that would kind of answer one question once and for all, what would that be? Oh, my, there's there's so many questions that get asked over and over about, (laughs) well, is it dangerous, right? And it's not as dangerous as continuing old patterns of self-destructive behavior, right? The research continues to show that who are the staff and they're all very well educated. All you look at any website of a wilderness therapy program, you're going to see the background and really dedicated and caring people. What are they going to eat? They're eating very healthy foods. More and more, the field of wilderness therapy is really skilled at what are healthy foods? What are essential healthy foods? And as we all know, we've all changed our most of us have changed our eating behaviors over the last 20 years to become much healthier and much more um, holistic than ever before. So wilderness therapy is a great alternative when things are not working out. And yet, even if young people aren't needing a wilderness therapy program, I think a rites of passage like an outward bound course or a Knowles course, et cetera, is a huge rite of passage that could be quite helpful for young people because there's less and less rites of passage. As you were saying, not everybody, after they finish the wellness program, what, what we know of wellness therapy programs, they're going to be sober and clean, right? They're going to be outside. They're going to have this period of time where they're eating well, they're exercising, they're getting vitamin D, you know, because of the sun. 
and they're slowing down. There's no influences of phones, like you know, social media, etc. Many yes. go back and relapse, regress to old behaviors. Do it. The research doesn't shows us that they don't go as far back. But yes, there can be, like in any treatment, regression. But it's usually a stepping stone. I've known many, many students, and there's plenty of research backing up that. As time goes on, they look back on their experience in wellness therapy going like, yes, that's when I really started to get a view of what, because by the time someone ends up in treatment, their first residential treatment, things have been going sideways for many years. As we say in the field, it takes so long to get into the woods and it takes a while to get out of the woods. And so sometimes in that getting out of the woods, they fall back into old patterns of behavior, but they recall in many programs, we certainly do, as we say, remember how you feel right now. Remember how you feel right now, because as time goes on and after they discharge, if there's not a really good plan of what's next and what's after that, a lot of scaffolding can go back in behavior old behavior, but they can remember how it felt to be clean and sober. So, so much good information about wilderness therapy, the history of where it came from, who it's good for, all kinds of amazing information in episode 14. So if you're curious about that as an option for your family, for your child, definitely go back and listen. I always love talking with people who are interacting with families day in and day out as they work to change their patterns, their family dynamics. And I was really fortunate to speak with Dave Hertz and Willow Rubin from Wonder in episode 16 to explore topics like enabling, which is something almost all parents of kids with substance use issues worry about. And I also put Willow on the spot a little bit and asked what it would be like if I were a fly on the wall in one of their mentoring sessions with an adolescent. And so it was a great conversation. Listen in to hear this insider knowledge for parents. What does that look like when you guys are working with parents? Because this is a topic that Every single mom I talk to, every single one without question says, I know I'm enabling. I think I'm enabling. I don't know how not to. Um, What does that look like when you're working with parents and how you help them recognize, A, if they are doing something that's, you know, enabling in in a detrimental way? And then how do you sort of help them hold boundaries with their with their kids? Well, I think we start with trying to help parents recognize what their own needs are and if they if what we might be considering enabling is really a a strong need for a parent that's not getting met by just saying don't enable your kid we're missing giving them a path of how not to do that so it's we also apply this relational work to parents we a lot of our parents are very educated around um, this information they know a lot they've been told a lot but it's hard for them to really connect with um, feeling empowered on how to make different choices. So just the same with the kids, we need to create some relationship and trust building with parents so they feel seen and understood into what might be stopping them. And some of the language that we use is, you know, 
we really don't have control over what our what our kids do. This is the reality of of life and parenting. And so once we start to help them be more reality based in what they what they can and can't do, enabling sort of loses that power, I think. And it's more about um, taking care of themselves. And also understanding that by showing unconditional love doesn't mean you're giving permission for your child to use or have any other maladaptive behaviors. It just means you can love them unconditionally, and that's not enabling. What do you hear? Um, I'd just be curious. Like, I'd love to be on a, a fly on the wall in some of those <laughs> in those meetings. Um, but what do you hear? You know, teens and adolescents say that they want the most from their parents, or you know, whatever. Maybe it's not their parents. Maybe they have a different guardian relationship. But what is it that they want? Right. I, I would say that in in many different ways, it shows up that the kids really want to be seen as they are and not how the parents wish that they were. And that sounds, I know, very big, but it happened just in my supervision calls today, it, it came up three times where, you know, parents' fears around future of um, school and a, a lot of future thinking, which, you know, side note for the for all of our kids, uh, again, with their brains, that's not really going to work for them. They don't make their decisions based on the future like adults do. So you're fundamentally, you know, creating a disconnect with your with your kid. Um, That's kind of just a side note. But what the kids are saying is, I would like to be seen as I am right now, a lot of them have been through um, higher levels of care, and they want they want their changes to be seen, maybe not just behavior, behaviorally, but relationally, you know, I want my parents to look at me differently and see what I went through. Is there a question or a scenario that you guys see all the time that like, if I could give you a billboard in downtown Colorado, somewhere in Denver or somewhere that you could answer a question once and for all, um, what would that be? Um, I think again, I mean, I'm obviously more on the clinical side of things, but for me, it would be, you know, how do you know if they're doing okay, if their behavior doesn't change? Because I often say we're relational model, meaning we look at improved relationships as a sign that things are working. And that doesn't always transfer into behavior relationships. And that's a little bit different conversations with our substance abuse kids. I can recognize that. But fundamentally, when that question is, how do you know they're doing well? And the answer is, do you feel better in your relationship? Do you feel that if your son or daughter is doing well right now, if that changes in the future, you have the skills and the ability to navigate that with them and still show your unconditional love. And then when the answer is yes, then we know that's why we move from a, from a relation of behavioral talk to a relational talk. When I found Dr. Patricia Conrad, I was so happy because in the years of dealing with my own son and also in working with you as parents, I continue to hear about very similar personality traits in our kids. But I wanted to get a solid scientific evidence-based view on this, and Dr. Conrad explained the traits that have been proven in research to make a young person more susceptible to substance use and addiction. And she talked about a program that she developed to catch kids early and help steer them in healthier directions. 
This was a really fascinating conversation in episode 18 with Dr. Patricia Conrad. So I I studied children of alcoholics and tried to understand what they were inheriting. And there there was a wide variety of of characteristics that differentiated children from from families with with multi-generational family histories of substance misuse compared to those who who did not have such histories. And uh, the the variables that appeared to be most relevant and consistent were um, neurocognitive differences. So, So different you know, styles of thinking, um, some learning difficulties, uh, attentional problems, uh, executive difficulties, but that there was also a variety of other um, uh, other characteristics that maybe had smaller effects, but but were nevertheless consistently observed. So I I really set out on this path of trying to understand why risk for addiction is so highly concurrent with risk for other mental health concerns? And what is it about those risk factors that translate that make young people more vulnerable to using and misusing substances? So what, what, what is it about having a, a slight learning difficulty or attentional problem that draws you towards you know, early onset substance use and, 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 and maintains a heavier and problematic pattern of substance use? It seems intuitive, but when you really start to try to think about it, it's not obvious why some of, you know, some of these mental health concerns or learning difficulties would make someone want to use a substance that actually exacerbates the problem in most cases. And so the interventions that I've developed were designed to help someone manage the impulsivity as opposed to the attentional problems or the substance use really focus on managing impulsivity. And if you do that really well, the question at the time was, could that actually help someone manage both sets of problems? And that's indeed what we've, we've shown through the years using very rigorous randomized controlled trials uh, involving people with substance use problems, involving young, early, early uh, you know, uh, underage drinkers and, and substance misusers, or even children who have never even been exposed to substances yet, if you, if you teach them how to manage some of these early risk factors for addiction and, and mental health problems, you can help them not only delay the onset of their use, but um, prevent trans, um, uh, transition to alcohol problems and other problems with illicit substances and, and mental health concerns. So what are, you talked about, there's four traits, and I'm sure for parents who are listening, um, and I and I talked about this on a recent episode that I've noticed consistently um, when I talk with parents about their kids, there's some typical things that come up all the time. So I'm curious to know, what are those, the traits that you focus on? So, uh, you know, the, the work that I do is, is always uh, empirically based. So these, th- this has been demonstrated, you know, quite consistently in my work and others where it's, there isn't just one personality trait. So this notion of the addictive personality doesn't really stand up to empirical investigation. But what does seem to stand up is the notion that there are multiple traits that are linked to risk for, for, for substance use disorders. So impulsivity, I've already mentioned, so the tendency to kind of act rashly without thinking. But another one is is thrill-seeking or sensation-seeking, and that can be different from impulsivity. Sensation-seekers aren't necessarily always impulsive. They really tend to be driven by the desire to experience intense, arousing situations and get bored very easily. But other traits like hopelessness uh, are also 
very much implicated in risk for for early onset problematic use in adolescence and tends to co-occur with risk for depression. And then there's another couple of traits that we focus on. So one is um, anxiety sensitivity. It actually acts as a, a, a protective factor early on because so this is a trait that is um, very much implicated in risk for panic-related anxiety disorders. And it, um, it's not so much a tendency to, to experience a lot of anxiety, but when you experience anxiety, you have a real fear of your own physiologic arousal or sensations related to being anxious. So items that would, would detect anxiety sensitivity would be something like, it, it scares me when I feel my heartbeat. So what's interesting about that trait is that it kind of it protects young people early on because they're, they, they tend not to try substances early on because, out of fear of what the substances will do to their physiology. But once they've transitioned to substance use, they very quickly realize, wow, there are certain substances that really are good at helping them manage their, the anxiety and the arousal symptoms that they so fear. And so they telescope more quickly to, to becoming dependent on certain types of substance use. So those are the four. And then we've also more recently been focusing on a couple of others. So there's a, another trait that, that only characterizes a small portion of the population, but it, it's called psychotic-like experiences or this tendency to maybe attribute too much salience to certain odd perceptual experiences. It's a very rare trait it's more often observed in very young in, in kind of very young adolescents and, and children grow out of that, but there's a small portion of the population, about seven percent of the population, who who struggle with that all the way through adolescence. And they're the ones who you would you've probably seen, Brenda, who develop difficulty with substance use and, and uh, psychotic symptoms and disorders. So that would be a, a fifth trait. And for Especially for parents, I think it can be such a confusing time as your kids get into that. Well, 11, 12, 13 year old age, they do start to make changes just naturally as adolescents. And then it's hard to tell sometimes what is sort of normal teen, you know, and tween behavior and what is not. And so something like this that gives you that, like you said, that empirical data to say, yes, your child might be impulsive and a level of that is normal, but this level might be something to pay more attention to. Is that sort of, a, is it kind of a, a litmus test in a way for parents? I, I fully agree with what, what you've just said. I, that's exactly it is um, in child and adolescent psychiatry and psychology, often you know, the, the parents and, and the child and the school might be detecting that things are, are little, you know, that there's a struggle, that things are uncomfortable, that, you know, may, the child might be coming distant, but really the only way to, access services in many in many parts of the world or to for everyone in the family to agree that this child requires some kind of intervention things have to escalate to a, you know a very high level and what we're suggesting in this approach is that can often be a two year period where symptoms and difficulties are evolving and having an impact on learning at school and friendships and so on and that schools should take a bit more of responsibility and being a bit proactive in terms of reaching out to to children, allowing them the opportunity to self-report on the existence of these traits and how they feel, how, you know, how much of, of these traits they're experiencing and allow them opportunities to do something about it. And what's amazing is that when you offer this program in a school 
and you and you advertise it in a way that that is uh, accurate, but also that you know is positive and and focuses on the preventative nature of it. But eighty five percent of students sign up for the program, so they're interested in this. They're interested in learning the skills and the way we way we advertise it. As we say, this is a a workshop where you learn about your personality, you learn about your personal strengths, maybe some of your personal weaknesses, and you learn to, to skills to help channel your personality towards your long-term goals. And when you put it that way, and when it's offered to a wide range of students, regardless of whether they've started to experience problems or not, what you find is that overwhelmingly, the majority of adolescents would like this kind of assistance. And if a, if a parent sees, because, you know, obviously, parents are... Um, seeing their kids so closely as they're growing up. And if the parents listening and they've seen some of these traits that you've talked about, what would your advice be as far as, you know, maybe they're not ready. Maybe this program isn't available there. Are there things that they can do if they're seeing like, Oh, that kind of sounds like my kid. What mm-hmm. would your, like what course of action would you recommend that they take? First of all, I, you know, don't just try to convince yourself that they'll grow out of it. You're, you're better off addressing it in advance than waiting for something to become a bigger problem. I recommend to parents that you know, if you're detecting some you know, traits of, of intolerance of, of anxiety or fear or that tendency to have a, a, a more pessimistic outlook on, on things, or if your child struggles with executive control and, and uh, impulsivity or, or thrill-seeking, you want to address it before they enter into those riskier years. You want them entering into adolescence with skills that help them manage these traits because if they're unmanaged, they will lead to substance misuse. It's, they're very direct, directly linked to substance misuse. So that was Dr. Patricia Conrad. Her program is called Preventure. I realized that we did not get to that in that little snippet. So the program is it's based in Canada, but it is available in some schools here in the US. So check out Preventure and you can find out where that's offered. All right, if you are listening, it's probably pretty realistic that you have found yourself at a very late hour sitting in front of a computer or your phone, wondering what you should put into Dr. Google to get some help for your son or daughter. Jenny Wilder, in episode 20, talked about how she took her tech experience, mashed it up with her hands-on experience doing therapeutic consulting with families, and created allkindsoftherapy.com. This is a place where you can get answers to all of your hard questions. She's got hundreds and hundreds of blogs answering questions that parents have. And you can also compare therapeutic treatment programs and boarding schools side by side. So this is a lifesaver tool for parents that just narrows down the billions of results that you'll get on Google and can really help you save time when you're looking for help for your kid. So Jenny shared some really great golden nuggets in this episode number 20 when we spoke in August. I always wanted a resource. It was silly to me that you could buy a car and compare a Toyota, Subaru, and a Honda, but you couldn't compare treatment programs, or you can compare cell phones or whatever. And so I always 
you know, because of my experience out in California and kind of growing up, college is great. I really learned about work (laughs) in California. You know, my brain was developed on the web. And so why, why wasn't there a website where you could compare treatment programs side by side? So I was like, I'm going to do this now and get out of the emergency business with families. The scary experience of your first Google search when you're a parent in the situation is just, uh, it's so overwhelming and it's so uh, terrifying. And the problem is, as you know, you're in a state of panic and crisis when you're doing it. So you're not even thinking straight. So to, to do that, you know, you type in, you know, teenage son, Percocet, help, whatever, and you get back 5 million results. It's like, um, now what? I know. And I know now what? And, and Google, you know, there's a, there's so many, um, Google did a good job for a while there and, and really shut down the predatory treatment programs. Um, and you know, that's one thing on my website that I'm so obnoxiously transparent about. I think, you know, most of these online directories, are owned by treatment programs, owned by consultants who are getting referrals from, I mean, these poor parents who contact me and want to hire me. I I mean, it's, you know, I'm like Wonder Woman, like deflecting the question. I'm like, here's some experts. Here's some blogs. I'm never going to talk to you on the phone. Right. You know, here's what you need. The amount of texts that I send to people, they they must think I'm literally (laughs) insane. But I, I, you know, I don't even want to engage in a conversation because I know that every parent wants just the name of a program to hang their hat on and run with. And I, that is not my expertise anymore. I, I really spend the bulk of my day figuring out what questions parents are asking so that I can generate content and tweak the website so that it's geared towards those answers. So what are parents asking? Like, what are the things that, that they're, <laughs> where, how they're finding you? Um, and has that changed over time? You know, it's a good question. Um, I think my understanding has changed over time. Um, you know, primary substance abuse programs, I've always been very afraid of because of what you were talking about, the Google search. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so what I do is uh, be, I'm pretty intentional, or I attempt to get really focused programs that I know are somewhat quality, although I can't say every program on my on my website is the perfect program, because there is no perfect anything. Right. That um, doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't exist. And parents, you know, the interesting thing about this is that parents don't know what they're looking for. Right. I would imagine your own experience reflected that too. What you knew on day one at your 2 a.m. Google search versus 48 hours after whatever problem happened, or, you know, even when you're thinking about a custody situation or parent, I mean, is it that my kid's ditching school or my kid won't get out of bed for school or, you know, is it truancy? Is it? And so I'm the things that have changed is kind of, wilderness therapy people and people searching for insurance-based programs so I now have Mm. that as a filter on the left-hand side so programs that offer any sort of insurance reimbursement if they answer that question um, each per each advertising program that answers 
that's listed on the website has to answer about 30 different questions. And that's a little bit different than if you're going to psychology today. Um, and yeah. I, and the reason I did that had nothing to do with me trying to differentiate myself. <laughs> it had everything to do with the fact that I wanted to reveal the breadth and depth of what programs were doing and beg more questions than it answered for parents because of exactly what you're talking about. You don't know anything when you're, when you're starting this. And so I wanted families to see like up front, is this program licensed by the state? Do they have a national accreditation? Do they take insurance? Do they have licensed therapists? I mean, there are so many shady treatment programs out there who say that they have therapists, but they're not licensed. Do you do your group therapy sessions? Are they run by clinicians? You know, that's a huge differentiator. When you're talking about wilderness therapy, they always get lumped into boot camps. Well, they're totally different in terms of their model. But when you start to look at the history of wilderness therapy, everyone gets clumped together. And it's like, no, 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 wilderness therapy programs are something totally different. And here's why they're different. You know, these treatment programs 20 years ago, uh, whether it's residential or wilderness, you know, they didn't have treatment plans, you know, from your own experience, your kiddo had a treatment plan. Um, So that's, you know, even a program that has a treatment plan versus a program that doesn't have a treatment plan is totally different. Um, And so that's, I guess, my, uh, in my fit of like, interest in demystifying what was going on, I went, I created this website, with so many facts that people come and they stay when they find it, they come and they stay for over two minutes. And that's been the case, which two minutes in web time, as you know, when you're on a website, it's eternity. (laughs) And I love that you require the programs to answer those questions because parents don't, you don't know what you don't know. So you don't know what to ask. And what are some of those, like maybe three or four really important questions that parents probably don't know they should be asking when they talk to either a consultant or if they're talking directly to, you know, a a program? Oh, that's a good one. You know, I think some of the most important things to ask is, is the treatment program licensed by the state? Sometimes the states don't have uh, accreditation, I mean, licensing, especially in over 18 programs. So then I always ask, and and, um, the National Association of Therapeutic Schools and Programs is going to be requiring this of all of their members, that there is a national accreditation. Mm. Um, Because... Because, you know, the feedback when you look on, when you look out on the web, which can be a very scary place is, oh, these places are all about making money. And yeah, they're businesses for sure. And most of the treatment programs that I know, their doors are open to more the merrier in terms of oversight. I mean, I have a blog talking about specifically with treatment programs about why accreditation, national accreditation, whether it's joint commission or COA or CARF is important to those programs and why they open the doors to people. So I think one thing I always want to tell parents is like, there is no stupid question that you can be asking an admissions person because this is the hardest decision they will ever make as a parent. Um, And you've had to walk through that door and it's not an easy door. And so you can call them as many times as you want. And if you talk to one treatment program and you like their answer better, then call the other program back and be like, why don't you do it this way? Right. You know, because, because that if a program isn't going to give you the answer that you want, 
then maybe it's not the right program for you. And that's okay. It's true. You're, you sort of feel intimidated because you're in uncharted territory as a parent. You've never typically, at least in your first go around, you've never been like, I didn't even know this world existed, right? I was just living my life just like every other mom and dad. And all of a sudden I'm, I, I realized that, you know, okay, we need some serious help and didn't even know that there was such a thing as an educational consultant. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about what that is in a minute, but I didn't know about wilderness therapy. I didn't know about, I'd heard about these horrible boot camps, and I thought there's no way I'm going to send my kid there. So you get really intimidated. It's kind of like car, calling, you know, a car dealership. <laughs> you just feel like you're like, oh, I don't know what to ask. I'm I don't totally know. being taken advantage of. Yeah. Right. And, that, and that honestly is why every one of my blogs, for the most part, is geared towards parents. And I always want to tell parents, like, give yourself the space to just ask the questions. And if you don't like the answers, that's okay too. And you're going to get more information as you, as you get more information from the treatment programs or the professionals you're dealing with or the local therapist at home. I think the other thing is like some people, you know, go to treatment and you come home afterward and you know, how that works is much more complicated than a child going on to another treatment center. And I know it's possible. And I also know that there are people who can come into your own home and start monkeying around and really working on the family system. Right. Um, There's yeah. so many different options. It's And that's, I, I love that kind of your comparison model because a lot of times, and I know for us, we didn't really have very much time. You know, we, and, and every family's different. Some families, like the kid actually knows that they're going to be going some are, are more like mine where we can, we had to use transporters and he didn't know he was going to be going. But sometimes, you know, you've got like 48 hours to make this decision. Mm-hmm. And so just having kind of a black and white and taking the emotion out of it. And I think that's one of the hardest things for parents and why consultants are helpful is to Super get helpful. the emotion okay. out of it of like, I could never do this. How could I make my kid go live in the woods or, or whatever it is? Yeah. And so, so much can, discomfort. And oh, yeah. Consultants are not cheap. And I know that that is a big barrier because it's not covered by insurance. However, I think there's a, a trade-off too of your your time and your emotional effort and your emotional state where they can bypass a lot of that research phase for you. Is that really one of the biggest benefits that you see of consultants is being able to really be that guide and, and cut out some of that yes. crazy? <laughs> yes. A good consultant is a surgeon. You know how surgeons kind of take the, you know, they just slice you open and get it done. And they've mm-hmm. been doing it so often that they can do it they, they can do it without the emotion and they right. can walk you through and they can see the roadblocks that are happening. I always felt like I was a Sherpa as a consultant, yeah. like, okay, we're about to lose oxygen here. Here's your oxygen mask. Right. It's going to be a really hard part. Like breathe. Here's some, yeah. here's some food. Here's a tent. We're going to stay here at this, you know, for 10,000, you know, for yeah. a couple of days, get you acclimated. And then we're going to climb this other one. And a good consultant also, I mean, you know, my, my dear mentor, Athna, I remember one time a kid, a kiddo came in the office at two o'clock and was on the way to treatment by four o'clock out of the office. And not everyone's ready, willing and able to do that. And a consultant can do that, not generally during COVID-19, but (laughs) 
it is possible to to have these things happen that quickly and and to be able to grab resources and that's the piece a consultant is really a concierge service for these families Oh, there is just so much good information. Episode 20 there with Jenny Wilder. So if you're a parent who is navigating that ocean of treatment options, uh, definitely check out allkindsoftherapy.com and you will save yourself a lot of time. In one of the top five most listened to episodes, Chrissy Positak, who is the author of the de facto book for parents of kids who are in treatment, called The Parallel Process, shared her real down-to-earth and incredibly insightful views on how parents can and should create a safe container for kids. And she'll talk about what a safe container, what that means. We talked about why doing that is so important and then also what happens if we don't do that. This is a must-listen episode. Even if your child isn't in treatment right now, Take a listen because it definitely applies to doing some things with your parenting wherever your kiddo is. That's interesting because as parents, um, you know, when you when you do end up making the decision to send your child to wilderness therapy or wherever, at least for me, I I just envisioned that it was going to be this sort of really and it is hard, but I didn't, I hadn't really thought about the fact that my son would be experiencing all the wonderful things, like you just said, like being in nature and having a relaxed schedule and, you know, not being glued to his phone. So I think sometimes as a parent, you miss the, like all the great benefits that they're going to experience. Cause I, I don't know, at least for me, there is just a tendency to really focus on the negative and, you know, oh, this is going to be really hard. And, and so even as acting as the therapist, you got to feel some of those benefits of, of just being outside. 100%. And I think, I mean, cause now I do a lot of transition work and I, when I'm a parent coach and I, I hear that kids miss wilderness because I mean, social media is stressful, right? I mean, kids lives today are so oh, stressful yeah. and I hear kids say, I wish I was in the woods. So I didn't have to be on social media because you always have to be on top of everything. Right. And then you always have to be, you know, it's like the, the keeping up and it's the FOMO, you don't want to miss out and, and, and it is exhausting. And so there's a, I think one of the, and, and just so just to share to everybody, you know, my whole template of my parent coaching comes from wilderness, right? What I learned in the wilderness and what I think naturally happens in the wilderness is the adults are in charge. The staff are creating safety. Mm-hmm. They're creating a safe container for the kids. So the kids can be kids. Right. And that's kind of what I try to emulate in the home, right? If the parents are the parents, the kids can be kids. And what does that mean? They can relax, they can play, they can have fun. But a lot of times when we're um, the parent system, right, the parenting system is they're losing their authority and they're giving power to their kids. The kids aren't kids anymore, right? The kid is a mini adult. And then we think, oh, I need to give them choice. I need to give them power. I need to, right, um, make sure they're happy. And when we're doing that, we're actually dissolving our parental authority, but we're also creating anxiety for kids because they don't have the brain development, the prefrontal cortex development, the maturation to have that level of power. And so that's what I really saw in the wilderness is kids become kids. They get dirty. They just have fun. They laugh. They play games, right? Which a lot of kids aren't doing today. So yeah, there's so many positives. If, you know, if that was your impression that, oh no, all the negatives of wilderness, there's so many positives. The kids are, are, I would say, happy. You start to see that light come back and that 
happiness in kids that, you know, we send pictures home and parents are like, that's not my child. Like, doesn't even looks like them or maybe like right. eight, right? Or five. <laughs> now when they're 15 right. years, you know, and it's, it's true that a child smile that, you know, that, you know, letting kids be kids. That's so. so important. And I think you're right. We we forget these days. And I'm so curious, you know, I read your book when my son was in wilderness, and then I, I started re-listening to the audio version of it just because you forget a lot. And there were some really great things that I had sort of forgotten along the way about us as parents really needing to set those boundaries for kids. And I, I think parents have a hard time with that. And you had given an example of some cows in a field with a fence. And I would, it just resonated so much with me. I don't know if you wanted, can you just quickly like paraphrase what that is? Because it just made so much sense as a parent. Absolutely. And I actually got this from a fellow uh, wilderness, uh, you know, staff that I worked with, but he was, he was a rancher, you know, he had different jobs, including working in the wilderness. And for a period, he was working on a ranch. And he said, the interesting thing is when you let the cows out to the pasture, the first thing they do is they check the fence. And so he sort of was asking them, why are the, why the, why are the cows doing that? And he said, oh, they're making sure it's secure. They're making sure those fence is secure. So no like predators can get in or that they, you know, they could get, you know, sneak out. And once they sort of put their body up against and test the whole fence around, they'll come into the middle and eat the, eat the fresh shelf alpha. And, um, because they feel safe, right? They can let their guard down and relax and just enjoy the pasture. And and absolutely that relates to kids. A lot of times what kids are doing is they're testing, testing, testing. Is this secure? Is this safe? And when what we saw over and over in the wilderness is that, you know, kids come and they test, right? I don't know if your your child did that, but oh, kids, yes. you know, sometimes they run away. Sometimes they, oh, yes. you know, refuse to hide <laughs> or they make threats or that, you know, they do all sorts of testing because they're used to having the power. And then what happens is, is there's this very compassionate response of totally okay to feel angry. And, and we can go over this, like some of the, the parenting stuff that I teach, but it's just letting kids have their feelings, totally okay to feel your feelings. But if you choose not to participate in the program, right, that's your choice. But you know, just so you know, you won't be moving forward, right? We're just going to sit tight here and you're in the whatever, every program's a little different. Some have like a level one or a phase one. Uh, and, you know, and, and so if, you know, if you refuse, we'll ju- we're just going to sit tight here on phase one. And, and so there's accountability, right? There's a lot acknowledging their feelings and their process, but also holding them accountable. And what happens with that is kids realize I can't manipulate the system, right? And they realize it's secure. The only way for me to work within the system is to make an internal shift, right? If I, if I shift my inner environment, if I adapt and I work within the system, then you can move forward to phase two, to phase three, right? And eventually have phone calls with home. And, but what happens is then they start to feel better and they start to build relationships with their peers and they start to become a leader and they start to open up. And it's like this amazing process, but they have to test the system first. And what they're trying to do is to see, is it secure? Is it safe? And then they relax. And, and, you know, I, I give a lot of like metaphors in my coaching of like, you know, would you rather your child to go to a classroom where the teacher's in charge and there's rules and order, or would you rather your child go to a classroom where the kids are in charge and it's more chaotic? Right. right? Well, I'd say 10 out of 10 parents would say A, right? Where the teacher's in charge and there's rules and order. Well, why is that? Because when the teacher's in charge and there's rules and order in the classroom, there's routine, there's predictability, there's safety. Kids know what's going to happen every day. So the kids come to class, they follow the routine, they follow the 
the order. They follow the, the you know, the teacher's uh, instructions. And when they do that, their anxiety goes down because they're relaxed. They know what's going to happen in the other, and you know, in, in the other setting where the kids are in charge and it's more chaotic, you don't know what's going to happen yeah. every day, right? Totally. You know, you yeah. don't know what's going to happen. You're more on edge, right? There's more anxiety and, and also less available energy for learning, right? So if we go to A, there's much more available energy for learning because the emotions are relaxed. But in B, when you never know what's really going to happen, you're more tense, you're more on edge. So then I ask parents, well, what are American homes look like? Do they look like A or B? Yeah. Uh, Most American homes, kids are in charge and there's, and it's more chaotic, right? It's, and and so we forget that when we have this, this like reduced parental authority, when we have a little more chaos in the home, it's actually creating more anxiety for kids. And we don't, you know, and that's that paradox I really see is we have anxious kids. And so we, we backpedal, we give them more choice, more freedom, more say, oh, you don't have to go to soccer today. Or, or you know, um, if you're not feeling well, you know, we can skip school today. You know, so, but actually that creates more anxiety because it's a bigger container versus mm. a tighter, more contained feeling. Like when most of us feel anxious, when we feel contained and, and safe, then we relax, right? And that's exactly what the wilderness did. When I learned that there are over 130 collegiate recovery programs in existence on college campuses in the U.S., I knew I had to get somebody who could help educate me and you as parent listeners on this topic because a lot of our kids go on a little detour in high school And then when they get back on track, it can be really terrifying as a parent to think about shipping them off to a college campus where partying is sort of the norm. For episode 29, I found Keith Murphy, who is the senior substance abuse counselor at Rutgers University, and we spoke about all things college and recovery, what it looks like, how kids can get into it and also where parents can start in the process of even thinking about college for a student who has struggled with substance use. We also then spoke about the disparities that exist for young people of color and for those in the LGBTQ plus community, both in collegiate recovery and just in addiction recovery in general. I was specifically interested in finding a couple of guests for HopeStream who could address the topic of racial and social inequalities in addiction and treatment, given the Black Lives Matter emphasis in 2020. So listen in now to Keith Murphy in episode 29. When you talk about collegiate recovery, I think it might be easy to think about, oh, there's this weird kind of group of nerds hanging out over somewhere on the, on the edge of campus. But what does what does like real collegiate recovery look like, at least at Rutgers? And then I know you're you're involved in in more than that. But what does it actually look like for a parent who's listening, thinking, huh, I wonder if that would be good for my kid? What does it actually look like today? I'll I'll put it in a word. It honestly, uh, it looks like hope because. More often than not, most parents don't have a real frame or understanding that there is re- recovery. I'm going to be really corny, but recovery is possible for a young person. Uh, oftentimes, and I always say this, people in recovery don't make the news. It's people who are in active addiction, for good or for ill, end up in the paper, you know, and that, that's a whole other conversation, too. And so they don't have an understanding that, wow, people 
young people actually one have opportunities to change their use of, or eliminate their use and, and completely abstain and then go on to live full and rich vibrant lives that are absolutely full of life and full of meaning so it looks like hope because oftentimes i'm talking to parents you know their, their kid or, or their loved one is coming right out of maybe treatment they had maybe some college or no college and things are a little bit gray and then the, the magic kind of happens is that when they get a chance to meet other young people in recovery, they're like, oh, so now I know what this can look like. I know what this can feel like. There is some sense of relief, you know, that I can like, I can let my, I can let my, my child go and be with other people and begin to trust them and see how that they're going to, how they're going to develop and see how school and college is a real protective factor. I don't have to worry about giving them drug screens. I don't have to worry about when they're coming home. They can have so much fun and have so much life apart from substances or other, or, or other life controlling issues. So, and I also want to give a shout out to one of all the parents who are tenacious as hell in terms of like one navigating systems that are not simple, that are very difficult. Yeah. And then you, you interlock healthcare system, you interlock maybe even legal stuff. And then to throw another institution, education, on top of it, and to be persistent as hell, like shout out to them, because most of my interactions come from, I'll say eight times out of 10, it's a mom who is just like, hey, I've got, I've got a child that's, you know, just looking at coming out of treatment, they're thinking about college, or their counselor at the school, talk to them about the program. Or, or their counselor at the at the treatment place talk to them about the program. Can you help me? And what I what I say is like first off, like I don't care about you going to school. Is I care about you being alive. That's first and foremost. So I see my role as one as an information broker, and it's my job just to share information to help move them along in their process. And I say this: I don't care if you don't don't come to you know Rutgers or, or my university or wherever. I want whatever it's going to take to help you maintain what you've worked so hard to get. So, you know, and that's for the young person and then that's for the parents too, is that I really encourage people. It's like first, especially if you're coming out of treatment, you haven't been in school for a while, go to community college. Right. Try your hand at community college. Understand the ebbs and flows of an academic calendar understand the stresses that are involved, how to communicate with other people who aren't in recovery, right? Being in an atmosphere and environment where people may not actually care about your recovery right. and go to school, right? because that's absolutely important. The world does not care about your recovery. And it's not, and, and, and that's sad, but at the same time, people are dealing with so many other things. They can't be mindful of that. Community college is a great way to practice before moving into a larger venue or larger atmosphere, whereas you may be set up and not have the same level of success. That's a really good so point. Yeah. Yeah. That's so to me, the future in terms of collegiate recovery is community college because so right. many, and, and when I think about it, I went to community college twice, once before uh, recovery and then after recovery to get my prereqs to go into graduate school, I had to go back and I'm like, Oh my goodness, I'm back here. I'm in recovery in community right. college as a as a 30 year old person. Right. I thought it was going to be weird, but it wasn't. Right. It was I knew what I was there for, 
And that's also another thing. It, it helps focus. Like you, you get an idea of what you're there for. That's, that's another beauty of, of the students that are in collegiate recovery too. We kind of mentioned, and, and this is something I wanted to get to because I, I stalked you on online and I saw a couple of your videos that are on YouTube of your, your different presentations and talking just about the racial disparities in not only collegiate recovery, but just in the kind of the whole field of addiction and treatment. And I'd love to just talk about that a little bit because I think it's really so challenging. I mean, the stigma around addiction is so huge to begin with. And then I'd really love to understand a little bit better. And maybe you can share how the Black community sees addiction and you lived this, you know, and and you ended up kind of finding resources through your church. But what does that look like today um, for somebody, you know, uh, maybe a high school kid or somebody in their, you know, early college days um, who's struggling? Well, part of the the other part I didn't really expand on, one of the things when I first noticed uh, collegiate recovery was that one, it was a predominantly white space because people who had access and who were traditionally served by collegiate recovery were, were predominantly white men. And so there was a culture, one of a toxic masculinity, one heterosexism, just racism and just general oppression that was kind of baked into its institution. And people didn't recognize it because they all, trafficked in the same water. It was just the idea of like, oh, um, we're serving, you know, a group that's stigmatized and discriminated against on some level. So we're doing good work, not recognizing that those who are actually being oppressed were continually oppressing other folks to the point where people who had, who are LGBTQIA plus folks and other uh, black people and people of color didn't feel like they belonged in collegiate recovery. And the other part of it was, was that it was the idea and understanding that people recovered in the same way. And what was often promoted was a 12-step recovery mm-hmm. model, which is steeped in Eurocentric Western philosophy that honestly may not have been accessible or even understandable for a lot of folks. So there was that big cultural divide. And even the word mm-hmm. of recovery like means so many different things to so many different folks. So collegiate recovery didn't open its doors to other folks. And the way that I looked at collegiate recovery is that one, it's a haven and it's, and it's a mission, meaning it's, it's a place of support for people that are there, but it's also got to do a better job of doing engagement and outreach for folks that they wouldn't ordinarily get in touch with or folks that wouldn't think to look at uh, collegiate recovery as a support. Because we, we know that one, LGBTQIA plus folks use substances at a greater rate deal with greater trauma, need more additional support, that's that's one thing. And then the other part of it is, is that one, people of color also use substances at the same rate as their white peers, yet they don't get the same kind of uh, help and support moving along. In fact, they more often than not, substance use becomes more severe later on in life. And so those those issues are resolved much later. But And I wonder how many people would benefit from being exposed to collegiate recovery if they knew about collegiate recovery or people in marginalized populations, if collegiate recovery as a whole did a better job of one, uh, and I don't believe necessarily in diversity. Diversity could just mean the presence of marginalized folks, but not having power, but really being a more equitable and equal space for, for 
for those students. So I said a lot, but there's a lot of work to be done in terms of really doing outreach and engagement to make sure the collegiate recovery programs reflect, one, the larger recovery population out there. And we use and we have language that's not stigmatizing and understand that really this is life or death. It's, I don't even like to use the word stigma because it's too soft. It is literally a life or death situation, not just for those white, well-heeled students who have access to insurance because it's hard enough in that case, but even those other students who have to navigate so many different systems in terms of being connected to a college and even being embraced by recovery and then understanding that college and recovery on campus could be a protective factor. So with all of the Black Lives Matter events of 2020 and after speaking with Keith, I realized how little I knew about the complexities of addiction in racial and ethnic minorities. And I wanted to bring someone on who could speak to this from a place of deep experience, both educational, professional, and lived experience. And I was fortunate enough to be introduced to Dr. Ayanna Jordan. She's an MD and PhD addiction doctor from Yale. So I probably don't need to say much more about her qualifications. And we had a conversation that truly changed my thinking. I hope you will listen in to hear her important expertise and viewpoints. This is Dr. Ayanna Jordan from episode 35. So it used to be, you know, that people didn't want to be on methadone because there were a lot of um, negative uh, associations with methadone. A lot of times the opioid treatment programs where methadone is dispersed for opioid use disorder is in areas of high crime, also can be in lower impoverished areas. And so understandably, people didn't want to be associated with those areas in in terms of getting their treatment, but also to be totally honest, you might not want to put in your recovery in jeopardy if you have to go to this place in order to get your medication, but you know, you're going to meet some drug dealers along the way, right? Mm. So methadone itself is a wonderful medication and has been used for so many years, right? It was our gold standard. But what happened is the negative association of how methadone was dispersed and where it was dispersed really caused and still does have a negative cloud on how effective this medication can be. Right. One of the things that has happened over time is that buprenorphine came onto the scene and it works. It's just as effective as methadone, right? So there has been studies to show that there is no difference in effectiveness between methadone and buprenorphine. Both are effective in treating opiate use disorder and preventing death. Now, it just depends about access. So that's the thing, Brenda, we have to talk about is why is it that Suboxone is able to be accessed through your office-based care, right? So it just makes it much easier for people to get it because you don't have to worry about going to one program, one place, multiple times a week, you can get it, have a prescription for your doctor, and then only come in about once a month, which is really, really nice. And so this is important to think about how there's two systems of care for majority white populations and um, racial and ethnic minority populations, because 
when there was this uptick in the amount of white people that were dying, there was a huge push to make sure that buprenorphine was offered in office-based care. When we know that methadone is just as effective. So why wouldn't methadone be offered in the same way so that all people can have access to it? And what we're seeing is that even to this day, the most people who get buprenorphine, which is much less stigmatized, it's not in necessarily bad areas, benefit white people. And it's really upsetting because we want to be able to offer both treatments, which we know are effective equally to all people. It wasn't until we really transitioned from the war on drugs, right, that really affected negatively Black and Latinx population. It wasn't really until more white people became affected with the opioid crisis that there was a kinder approach to dealing with people who had opioid use. And that really followed what we're seeing in terms of allowing something like buprenorphine to be offered in a less restrictive way. And so part of my work is really understanding that kind of um, negative history associated with methadone and also pushing so that methadone can be offered in office-based centers just like buprenorphine to make sure that everyone can have access to it. The other thing that I think is important to know is that we're not doing well for anybody in terms of making sure that people have are actually using these medications. Can you imagine like this medication works so well, methadone and buprenorphine, but less than 20% of people actually use it. So we're not doing well for anybody to be totally honest, Brenda, but we're definitely doing worse in terms of Black and Latinx populations in engaging with care. So part of it is, yes, the views that these minority populations might have, but even when they're willing to use it, they can't access it because it is really reserved to more affluent areas where people are offering the buprenorphine in the office-based treatment, you know? So that makes it really tough. And people don't want to have to go to an opioid treatment program where you get methadone six days out of the week. I mean, can you imagine that? No, that's crazy. And it's always in a sketchy part of town that you wouldn't want to go to. You wouldn't want to go to. And so that is just what I'm saying. Like, these are the things that we have to look at, not necessarily the population, but why are the structures put in place that really make it very difficult for people to get the help that they need. So you mentioned the war, war on drugs. And what really happened, starting with the Nixon administration in 71, is that it really identified and called out Black and Latinx populations who use drugs. And instead of providing care and treatment, what happened is those people were sent to jail, right? And that was really the policy. And I think that this is important to understand and answering your question Mm -hmm. about how culture plays into this, because there are many people whose parents have been in jail and been affected and has really shaped their ability to be able to get help now, generations later, right? So we know that that led to an overrepresentation of black and brown people in the carceral system who use drugs, and that affects the experiences that they're children will have. So thinking about what does it mean? What is the trauma that's involved to grow up with a parent that is 
involved in the carceral system because of their medical illness. How does that make you feel? How do you experience that trauma? Do you try and use drugs as a way to deal with the pain of not having someone care about you? These are the issues that come up more often in racial and ethnic minority communities. Not because there's something about them genetically that predisposes them to this, but it's because of how they have been affected by the systems and the policies, right, that have led to um, being treated differently. But I do want to spend some time to just think about, well, what are the strengths that are happening and what are the ways in which we might draw upon kind of these cultural values and common themes amongst racial and ethnic minorities? And one of those things is the work that we do is really, really, really having a strong sense of faith as a tool to escape the reality of what is happening. And so for so many racial and ethnic minority communities, it's important for that to be integrated into their treatment system, you know, their treatment planning and their systems of care. And so many traditional addiction models shy away from that. So what are one of the things that we try to do in our our research is if we're able to integrate spirituality into evidence-based treatment, things that we know that works, are people more likely to engage in treatment? And what we're seeing, Brenda, is they are. So it's not this myth that they don't want to get treatment, that they don't want to use medication. No, it's not that at all. If the information is provided to them in a culturally informed way, if they know that if they're able to be on methadone or buprenorphine that decreases their chances of death by 80%, people absolutely choose that. Right. <laughs> Who's going to say no to that? Right. But they, it's never been presented in a way that allows them to really understand, right? And so one of the things yeah. with working with majority Black populations that I found is, Brenda, so much of the opiate crisis has been focused on prescription pills and a large focus on white communities that a lot of black people don't even know, Brenda, that heroin is an opioid. Mm. So they don't mm. even realize that this is something that could help them because they don't even know that they're part of the opioid crisis. Right. How upsetting is that? You yeah. know, mainstream media and, you know, in the New Yorker and this and that, and New York Times, all these places, they're like, oh, this crisis. But what about the people in the late 60s and 70s that are black and brown and have been dealing with heroin for years. Right. And they've never been offered these kinder treatments. They've been offered the war on drugs, you know, from Nixon that was really doubled down by the Reagan administration. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important for people to understand, like if people are presented with information in a way that they can get and understand along with the risks and benefits, of course they will make informed decisions because people want to live healthy lives. But also you have to incorporate cultural affirming values like spirituality and be able to help in things like expunging carceral legal histories, right? Because that can get in the way of really being able to take care of yourself and your family. Well, friends, this was such a difficult episode to create because I literally wanted to include every single guest that I've had on the show. Every single one has had so many great nuggets of wisdom, of experience, and every one of my guests has been incredibly generous with their knowledge and their time. 
And from the feedback that I get from you as listeners, I know that they have played a part in helping you navigate this incredibly, incredibly hard season of life. I'm hard at work on planning the 2021 season of Hope Stream. I have some truly inspiring guests coming up in the first few months of the year. I would love to get your thoughts and questions. And so if you enjoyed the podcast this year, or even if this is just the first episode you've listened to, it would be awesome to have you pop into your podcast app and leave a review and a rating. I know a lot of you are listening on Apple, and those are the stars that you see if you scroll down from the main homepage of HopeStream in the Apple Podcast app. If you're a mom listening to this and thinking, hmm, there must be other moms out there listening too, I can tell you that there are thousands of other moms that are searching for this same information and for a more personal connection. You can find me and a bunch of these moms by going to my website, brendazane.com, and there you will get lots of information about a really special online community of moms called The Stream. We have regular calls and chat sessions. Uh, We do a monthly yoga class for stress and anxiety, and it's all positively focused. It is not on Facebook, and it's completely confidential. Membership is on a pay-what-you-can model. So if you want to join this community and you need the support, you are in. You might also want to download my free ebook called Hindsight, Three Things I Wish I Knew When My Son Was Addicted to Drugs. It is packed with information that I truly wish I had known back in the darker years with my son. And so I share it now in case it might be helpful to you in your journey. You can get that at brendazane.com forward slash hindsight. And I will put a link to both of these resources in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for listening. I'll meet you right back here next week.